0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah. I know that recently, here at Eden, you have been studying the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. I like Elijah. I have a new son, if you didn't know this. His name is Elijah. So we have five kids. Now my three girls are here with me, but we have now two boys, Peyton our youngest, Elijah. So I know you've been studying about Elijah down here. Up in Richfield, we've been focused the last couple months, on a different Old Testament prophet, his life, ministry, and his writing. That is the prophet Jeremiah. Now, my guess is that most of us here probably don't know a lot about Jeremiah. There's probably a few things that stick out in your mind, but I doubt we know a lot, other than maybe that we don't know a lot about Jeremiah. Like this, is, this was the case uh, for me, that was one of the reasons that I actually wanted to start just listening to the book. So for about two years, that was like my hobby. Just I would just listen to the book over and over again. And after about two years of that, finally thought, you know, maybe, maybe, just maybe, I know the book well enough to try to venture in with our church. And maybe you feel that way. Uh, no, no worries at all. That was definitely the case for me and most of the people in our church. But it's interesting that our lack of knowledge general knowledge of Jeremiah is in spite of two things. It's in spite of the fact that Jeremiah is a very influential Old Testament book, especially in terms of how much Jesus and the New Testament writers used the book. They would have known this book very well. It probably would have been on, I think, like the top six Old Testament books that they knew and used in ministry and in the life of the church. It's also in spite of the fact that Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. By word count, it is longer than even Genesis, Psalms, or Isaiah. But if I asked you, do you know Genesis better or do you know Jeremiah better? I'm pretty sure it'd be 100% for Genesis. Okay? And you can think through the reasons for that. But for this morning, though we only have one time together, I thought I could at least introduce you a little bit to the book by by focusing on one major theme within the book, and that is the theme of the king. Now, before we look more closely at that, I want to start by helping us just get our bearings in Jeremiah. Maybe you've been reading it a lot lately. That'd be great, but my guess is not. So my hope is that this will help us today as we study one theme within the book, but also maybe after today you'll take up and read the book on your own. But if you decide to do that, you'll you'll realize pretty quickly Uh, if you don't know this already, that Jeremiah, of all of the books in the Old Testament, can be very hard to follow. Uh, But I think it can become a little easier, at least, if you can keep three things clear in your head as you read the book. One would be when Jeremiah was living. Two would be where he was serving. And three would be what was going on around him during his ministry. Now, the truth is those three things would be helpful in any study of any prophetic book in the Old Testament. But I think for Jeremiah in particular, if you don't have those three things clear in your head, you will be lost as you read through the book. And so interestingly, what we find when you open up the book of Jeremiah is that the author actually highlights those three things in the first three verses of the book. And so that's just a good place for us to start. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses one through 3 and you'll see those three things <coughs> when Jeremiah was living where he was serving what was going on around him in his life in the first three verses. So Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 1 says the words of Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah the son of Amon king of Judah in the 13th year of his reign it came also in the days of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now, again, my guess is that that doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of us right here, but, but those three verses are more or less the author's answer to those questions. When did Jeremiah live? Where did he serve and what was going on during his life and ministry? And so just, just to make sure we've got this, let's just run through those questions. I'll start with the, with the where question. Where did Jeremiah serve? The answer to that would be, be in Judah. Okay, so if you're thinking back to Elijah, right, where did Elijah serve? He served in Israel. And what we mean by Israel when we say that is we mean the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, right? But Jeremiah served in Judah, which is in the south. In fact, by his day, the north— Israel, where Elijah served, is no longer around. Uh, It was conquered long ago before Jeremiah. And so you always have to remember then two things about about Judah. (coughs) One is that Judah is where Jerusalem was. And then two, this is where the sons of David sat on the throne. So somebody like Elijah never ministered With the sons of David, he ministered to the kings up in the north. Yet a lot of different dynasties come and go. But down south, you had the capital city, Jerusalem, and that was where David's throne was. The sons of David continued to sit on that throne generation after generation. And Jeremiah served down there, in and around Jerusalem in particular. Now it says in the text that he was from a priestly family. Uh, So that's interesting. He ends up being a prophet, but he was actually the son of a priest. Maybe he had aspirations to go into the priesthood. Who knows? But God calls him to be a prophet. And it says he's from a town called Anathoth, which was only about three miles outside of Jerusalem. So, so basically, he would travel in and out. He was, he'd often show up preaching in the temple, as you read through the book, until eventually some of the kings would bar him from the temple. And so then he would like send his friend over there, Baruch, to do things at the temple. But he's just in and out, because he, he grew up and lived just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. So the second question, when Did Jeremiah live? Now, the specific answer to that (coughs) is in the 600s B.C. into the 500s. But the the dates aren't really the key thing to remember. What's far more important is that you know that Jeremiah served during the reign of five different kings in Judah. He served as a prophet for a long time. Uh, Like Moses, actually, Jeremiah served for about 40 years as a prophet. And that covered the reign of a lot of the sons of David. He saw a lot of them come and go. And as the text said, you saw he served first under which king? Josiah, who was a really great king. In fact, Jeremiah and Josiah were contemporaries. I mean, from what I can tell, they were probably almost the exact same age. And so if you think, if you know anything about Josiah's life, he comes to the throne at a very young age and Partway into his ministry, they find the law. He already had a heart for the Lord, but when they found the law, it, it radically changed his reign. And he just pursued the Lord with his, whole, with his whole heart. Jeremiah ministered alongside Josiah for a lot of that time with the support of Josiah. But then Jeremiah outlives him for a long time. And he serves under the sons of Josiah who were all really, really bad. The first few verses here, as you look, it actually only mentions three kings total by name. But there were actually five kings that Jeremiah served under. The, the other two that aren't mentioned, <coughs> they only serve for three months each. And so the introduction just kind of skips over uh, those people. But for those who like history and names, okay, the order goes King Josiah, who reigned for 31 years, okay? Then Jehoahaz, who served for three months. Then Jehoiakim, who served for 11 years. Then Chin or kin, who served for three months. Then Zedekiah, who served for 11 years, who was the last king to sit on the throne. So, okay, now third, what was going on during Jeremiah's ministry? If you read the stories of Jeremiah, And elsewhere, you'll find that Jeremiah served at the very end of the kingdom. In fact, in the verses we read, it says that Jeremiah ministered all the way into the exile, all the way until Judah was taken captive, carried off to Babylon. The city was destroyed of Jerusalem, and the temple was burned down. He served all the way through that. He warned people for decades prior to that, and he actually served all the way through that time period. Now, there's a lot more that I would like to say about those things, but that is enough to get us into the book to where we can listen to what Jeremiah has to say about the king. Now, to do this in a way that is manageable and easy to follow, okay, I've tried to, f- to boil this down, what Jeremiah says about the king in the whole book, okay, to just three ideas from two texts. Okay? The first text, Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, which has become one of my favorite chapters in Jeremiah. It reminds me of a bunch of other prophetic texts <coughs> where the prophets like to taunt other gods, you know, for not being able to do anything. Like they can't smell, they can't move. They'd be carried around. This is one of those kinds of texts. Okay. But in this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 10 challenges his people not to worry about the gods of the other nations. After all, Jeremiah says that none of their gods, which are only made of wood and stone, can actually do anything. And and they cannot compare to the true and living God of Israel. And by the way, Jeremiah chapter 10 is a great text to think about during election seasons, right? Whether things go the way that you want or not the way that you want. What is true, what is here is true either way, right? And to get a taste of this, jump into Jeremiah chapter 10, verse six. So the text says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, And your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. And also look at verse 10. (laughs) But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Now, Jeremiah talks about a lot of kings in the book, and he knew a lot of the kings. He knew not just the ones that reigned in Jerusalem, he interacted with them a lot, but he also knew of other kings like Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who he talks about a ton in the book of Jeremiah. But what is Jeremiah's view of the king? In, the, in this text. The most foundational thing Jeremiah says about the king is that God is king. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? The gods of the nations are stupid, but the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. For Jeremiah and really all the writers of scripture, this is foundational, that the God of Israel is the king of the world. Right. Now, Don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that Jeremiah thought human kings didn't matter. They matter a lot in this book, especially the kings from David's family. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So what does Jeremiah say about human kings in the book? Foundationally, God is king, but what does he say about human kings, especially the ones who sat on David's throne in Jerusalem? For this, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. This is where we'll spend most of our time. Now, it's important to remember what I, what I just said a couple minutes ago, that Jeremiah served as a prophet during the reigns of five different kings. The first one was Josiah, who was a great king. The rest of them were all total duds, to put it mildly. Now, you can, you can actually hear about all five in the book of Jeremiah across the 52 chapters, but it's in Jeremiah 22 that we get the clearest insight into what God thinks about those men who sat on David's throne after Josiah. Jeremiah 22 gives us more or less God's opinion of them, one right after the other. And that's what I want us to see. So start in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 11. This is God's opinion of the king right after Josiah. He's called Shalom. In this text, he is called Jehoahaz. In other texts, this guy did not last long. He was taken, to cap- he was taken captive to Egypt after three months of reigning. Okay? Jeremiah 22, verse 11. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah's father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die, (coughs) and he shall never see this land again. Okay, so what is God's message about this son of David? He's never coming back. Now let's skip down a few verses to verse 18. This is God's message about the next king, Jehoiakim, another son of Josiah. He reigned long, 11 years. Here's God's take on that king. Verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, ah, my brother or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, ah, Lord or ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Yikes. All right, so what was God's thought about that king? Right? No one will even care when he dies. I mean, could anything be more disgraceful for a king? Now let's skip down a few more verses to verse 24. This is God's message about the next king. He is called Kaniah in this text, but he's best known in the Bible as Jehoiachin or Jehoiachin. He is the grandson of Josiah, another Davidic king. Verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Then look down to verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Okay, what is God's message about him? Even if he were my signet ring, I would tear him off and throw him away. A signet ring, by the way, was something very special to a king. king would wear it to seal things, like letters to show they were truly from the king. God says, even if Kenai were my signet ring on my right hand, I would take it off and throw it away. I will hurl him and his mom into another country and they will never come back. <coughs> and by the way, on this, okay, though the next king, Zedekiah, would actually be the last king <coughs> to sit on David's throne, this king, Kaniah or Jehoiakim, is the one who lived longer. Jehoiakim would live for many decades in Babylon as a captive. So as you could imagine, for for Jewish people, there was likely hope in Jeremiah's day that one day they would see the return of the king to reclaim the throne of David. And they'd be looking for this guy to come back. But what does God say in the final verse of the chapter? Write this man down as childless. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have children. He did have children. But what's the point? Not one of his sons will sit on the throne of David. The Davidic dynasty is being chopped down. God has turned his face against the sons of David. And in the story of the Bible, if you step back, and I don't have time to go into this, but if you step back like, and think about the story of the Bible and the promises to David... This text is devastating news for the story of the Bible. I mean in fact, it actually seems to contradict God's promises to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to David an eternal kingdom. There will n- he'll never lack a man to sit on the throne. But here in our text, it seems as though God has pronounced instead a death sentence on the Davidic dynasty. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read those incredible promises that God made to David and then read things like this in the prophets? And what are we supposed to do with this? Perhaps the best answer is just keep reading Jeremiah. Okay, so in the very next verses, we are introduced to our third theme in Jeremiah about the king. First theme, God is king. Second theme, the Davidic sons are going down. Third theme, Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Who are those shepherds, by the way? Those are the leaders of Israel, especially the kings, the sons of David who were just talked about in chapter 22. God called the kings from David's family to be shepherds over his sheep. But instead of tending and defending the sheep, what have they done? They have destroyed and scattered the sheep. I wonder what God thinks when his shepherds do that to his sheep. And by the way, May all of us who are pastors or shepherds or who aspire to something like that take heed to these words, to what God thinks when shepherds harm his sheep. Verse 2, chapter 23, 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. That's what chapter 22 was all about. God will judge every unfaithful shepherd. But that's not where chapter 23 is going to stop. Look at verse 3. Then I will gather, I will gather the remnant of my flock, out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. You see, one day things will be different. God himself will bring back his sheep. And he will put over them better shepherds who will actually care for them. Now, all of that sounds really good, but it gets better. Verse five. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Okay, now, after what God just said at the end of the last chapter, what do you think about that? In the last chapter, it was like God was chopping down the Davidic family tree. God had pronounced, in essence, a death sentence on the Davidic dynasty. <clears throat> but now, within a few verses, God says this, Behold, the days are coming when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. So in chapter 22, we hear God's pronouncement of death. And in chapter 23, we hear God's promise of what? Of resurrection, more or less, right? God will raise up for David a righteous branch. And that is very similar to what you see in the prophet Isaiah. The same kind of pictures. To make sense of the pictures, I think you need to think of a tree. Isaiah talks about how David's dynasty will be chopped down so that, in his picture, so there will only be a stump left. But then Isaiah announces this good news in a text like Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's dad, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. I think we're dealing with the same kind of picture here in Jeremiah. In both cases, David's family tree is being chopped down to the roots. But in both cases, God promises to raise up a new branch for David. And in both Isaiah and Jeremiah, these are God's reminders to God's people that God is not finished with the sons of David, no matter what they see in front of them. This is God's promise of a new and better son of David, one who will reign justly over his people and one who will actually bring righteousness to his people. As it says in the next verse, Jeremiah twenty three, verse six, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And this this here is by no means the only time this kind of stuff is said in Jeremiah. If you want to read more about that, read especially Jeremiah thirty to thirty three. Those kinds of promises are all over the middle part of the book. <clears throat> but we've seen enough already to grasp three big ideas in Jeremiah about the king. One, God is king. This is foundational to everything he says about human kings. There's no need to fear any other god or any other king. God is king. I love the question. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? The Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting king. And yet, in God's wisdom, God has chosen to accomplish his plan in this world through human kings, especially kings from David's family. But that's the second theme in Jeremiah about the king. The sons of David, in his day, are going down. Jeremiah would see it. It was happening in his own day. Jeremiah announces God will chop down the Davidic family tree. It's like God pronounces the sentence of death on the Davidic dynasty, especially in those words to Jehoiakim about him. Write this man down as childless. Not one of his sons will sit on the throne of David. But then there's the third theme in Jeremiah, that out of the ashes, a new and better son of David will rise. Long after David's family tree has been chopped to the ground, God will cause one more righteous branch to spring up for David. On that day, they will serve the Lord and David their king, Jeremiah says elsewhere. And this new son of David will bring righteousness to the people and he will reign with justice over the people. God has guaranteed it. And he will not change his mind. Now now there's a lot more that could be said about all of that, but I, I want to try to then connect what Jeremiah said would happen to what did happen, in two ways. At first, what God said would happen to the sons of David did happen. Those taken away never returned. Jehoiakim died and was not missed. And most importantly, what God said to Jehoiakim or Kaniah happened to. He never came home. His sons never sat on the throne of David. Ruin came to those shepherds who destroyed and scattered God's sheep, just like God said it would. It would. And this is a reminder, there are no empty threats with God. But I don't want to focus only on the promise of judgment, which God carried out. Because that's not the only promise that God fulfilled. Though ruin came to the unfaithful shepherds, God also promised to raise up a new and better shepherd, a new and better son of David. And that is the second connection I want to make from Jeremiah. Is that what God said he would do for David, God did. For David and for us. I mean, think of, think of this. In a, in a little town called Bethlehem, centuries later, God began to fulfill his promise that he made in Jeremiah. A righteous branch began to spring up for David. As the prophets had foretold in texts like Micah, from Bethlehem there would come forth a ruler who would shepherd God's people Israel. The shepherd king came and what a shepherd he was. I mean, think of it in light of Jeremiah 23 and then think of John 10, which was read earlier today. Instead of scattering God's sheep, this shepherd came to gather them. Instead of feeding himself and taking from the sheep, he fed them. Instead of wounding his sheep, he came to bind them. Instead of abandoning them, when trouble came, he defended them. And instead of destroying them, he came to save them. Maybe you can remember that scripture reading from earlier today. And here's where you'd have to remember that Jesus knew the text we looked at today. He understood himself in light of these texts. So, so with that in mind, think of what he said in John 10 when he said things like this. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. And he does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus said to his Jewish disciples, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I got to bring them too. And they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock under one shepherd. Jesus saw himself as the shepherd king of Jeremiah 23. He was no hired hand. He did not run when trouble came. He made his sheep. He owned them and he loved them. And unlike the bad sheep or the bad shepherds, I should say, who would surrender the sheep to save their own lives, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his own life to save the sheep. That was the first reason I wanted us to read that text from John 10 earlier today. You have, you have to understand when Jesus tells stories like what he told, in many of those stories, he is being shaped by Old Testament text. And he's, for those who have ears to hear it, he knows they're going to hear it. And he's understood his mission and his own identity in light of texts like Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34-37 through 37, about how God would one day raise up someone for David who would be a better shepherd and would gather the people. We're supposed to see Jesus in light of that text. But I also wanted us to read it <coughs> for another reason because I wanted us to hear John 10:16, where Jesus says to his Jewish disciples... And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I want to bring them too. Now, the, only, the thing that comes to my mind when I hear that text is I always think of this old commercials uh, the book of, of the Mormons saying like they highlighted that phrase. Okay, That's just what I've... But, but think of that. When, when Jesus said that to a Jewish group, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I want to bring them too. So they'll just be one flock with one shepherd. What was he talking about? Who were those other sheep? Because one of the things that happens when you read texts like we looked at in Jeremiah, especially in chapters 30 to 33, we might wonder, wait a second, I am from Israel. I'm not from Israel, (laughs) maybe you might think, most of us, right? I am a Gentile. Is this good news for me too, I mean, like, I hope it is because I know I need a shepherd like that. But is this promise of this kind of shepherd for me? And I think this text in John helps us with that. When Jesus says to his followers, all of whom are Jewish, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I want to bring them in too. So we're all together in one flock under one shepherd. Who are those other sheep? Those are people like most of us here today. Jesus came, he would say, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But he came for more than that. The shepherd king did not just come for Israel, he came for the world. He came for us. He came to gather his flock, all of it. Jew and Gentile. All who would confess to him that they need a savior. All who would admit to him that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he came to unite all of his sheep into one flock under one shepherd. And he's not done yet. He is still gathering his sheep today, one by one, from the four corners of the earth. One by one, Jesus is bringing the lost into his one new flock, into the church, where Jesus watches over his sheep today where Jesus entrusts his sheep to the care of shepherds and to the care of his own brothers and sisters until that day when the chief shepherd returns to reign on the throne in the city of David. Do you claim Jesus as your king? Do you know him as your shepherd? Or to use maybe John's language, do you know his voice? If you claim him as your own, then do the things we sang about today. (laughs) Like adore him as your king. Or this week, proclaim him as your king when you have the chance (laughs) and rejoice that your shepherd knows your name let's pray Father would you take these words that ultimately just drive us to Jesus and would you stir in our hearts greater love greater commitment greater boldness more joy more rest in the good care of the good shepherd. I thank you for this church, Lord, that has invested much in my life, my family's life, and in the ministry of the gospel up in Richfield. I pray your blessing on this church in every way. Thank you for this sweet time together. I pray that this word will build and bind, that we may go forth this week ready to serve you, more committed to Christ and to one another. In whose name we pray, amen.